You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your Starman host, Abraham. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I'll be your major Tom host, Shane. Nice. I was sort of thinking yeah, David Bowie as well. So Hey, look at that. I love that. We're the same person. It's great. <laughs> we are a psychology podcast, and today's topic, psychology adjacent, is what it takes to be an astronaut. So just as a side story here, like I grew up near Kennedy Space Center in Florida, so I would always see the space shuttles launch from my backyard you can see every rocket and every shuttle launch as long as the sky was clear and which is really really cool so like there's a lot of space talk around where i live i was 10 days old when the challenger exploded i watched the columbia explode on the way in so it's like there's been a lot of like real like a lot of really bizarre events that have happened but when i was growing up i wanted to be an astronaut sure so i'm really excited about this now i know i can't yeah there's some rigor involved here to say the least yeah to say the least (laughs) and so quickly before we jump into this if you would like to watch a video of us recording this Mm -hmm. or maybe read the notes that we used to record this or maybe you just want to make sure that you get the episode a couple days in advance Mm -hmm. well there's a way to do that you can join us on patreon on patreon there are various levels of support and you get certain bonuses for whatever level at which you join And yeah, so that's something that you can do. If you don't want to support us that way, you could always leave us a rating and a review or just tell somebody, be like, hey, this is this great podcast. I love it. And then give us a five star rating. And yeah, those are the things. Yes, because the goal, the goal of the show is to always keep this free. But there are things that we want to do for you and we things that we want to do for the show as well. So any little bit of support helps. So a, a review, a share and a Patreon support all goes a long way, like really, truly goes a long way. We're not saying that just to kind of like hawk our wares. Yes. And to hawk our wares, but also yeah. because, but yes, you're absolutely right. Every little bit helps and we appreciate all of you. And let's talk about NASA. Yes. So humans like comfort. I don't know if you've all realized this yet. I tend to like living in places where the weather is very Goldilocks and oxygen is plentiful, but there are some people that like to explore these places. As mostly furless mammals, we can only handle so much cold, right? That's why we shiver. Okay. Sure. And I I don't know about you, but I tend to prefer places where gravity keeps my feet on the ground. So why the f*** would anybody want to go anywhere that doesn't have these amenities? So in this episode, we attempt to answer whether why we do what we do has the right stuff to go into a Blue Origin rocket with William Shatner. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I, as much as I dislike Jeff Bezos, I would go in a rocket with William Shatner. Understood. We're coming up on the Christmas season and he's done. He does a cover of Jingle Bells with Henry Rollins. So the guy has like this weird, his weird career. It's great. Interesting. Yeah. So to understand what it takes to be an astronaut, we have to first take a look at the environment. Okay. So we are placing human beings in what could be defined as what's called an extreme environment. And there is a lot of psychology and a lot of training and a lot of prep that goes into existing in places that are not habitable for humans. These types of environments are often hostile to life in general, not in it, but especially the humans, because we are soft bags of meat and bones. Now, yes, we here at Why We Do What We Do recognize that the entire planet wants us dead already. True. Living in Florida, the entire planet is trying to wipe us out. But what about those areas that like really, really want us dead? Those are more of those extreme environments. Yeah, we really did not evolve in any capacity to thrive in not a Earth like or, or just Earth home. Yeah. And so 
going into these places where we are being bombarded with radiation, mm-hmm. where we don't have breathable air, where there is not a consistent sort of direction of gravity, those are all very difficult on us physically, emotionally, psychologically. And there are these people who put themselves in that situation, even though it is a place that our our bodies were not meant to be. Yes. Because they did not evolve there. So astronauts are going to space, but this is not the only extreme environment that that human beings go to. And there are a lot of different examples of that. So we're going to go over a couple of them quickly. So first, there's acidic environments. Are these Earth? Earth situations? They that can are, be. Okay. There are specific acidic environments and, and alkaline environments that are dangerous to humans. Like these might be hot springs that that have like more acidic temperatures. This could be places where acid rain is persistent. But like if you look at like different planets, Venus is an example of an acidic environment where like there's a lot of acid rain and all that stuff. And there are other planets like there's a planet called Wasp that rains iron, molten iron. So that sounds horrible. <laughs> Indeed. There's extreme cold, like the the poles, like when you're in Antarctica, um, extreme heat, like desert places. There's places that are hypersaline, which means that there's a lot of salt, too much salt for life to really exist in those spaces, especially like when it comes to like salt water, like really yeah. overly salted water really can't support most life. And that's also you know bad for blood pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Assuming you're drinking the water. Yeah, don't drink that. Don't drink the Dead Sea. Obviously, situations where you have low pressure, meaning that uh, on Earth, we are surrounded by this, what I think from a zoomed out perspective is an extremely thin layer of gas that encompasses this planet that we're on. And it's mostly nitrogen with a little bit of oxygen in there and some other things. And all of that gas that's being pulled down toward our planet is actually kind of heavy and it exerts a certain amount of pressure on us. So the lower you are, in elevation, the more pressure you are contacting from that. And as an, as an example of sort of what this is like, if you go underwater, even 20 or 30 feet, you start to feel the pressure of all the water sitting on top of you. Yeah. And water is just a much thicker version of the atmosphere basically. Cause it's just, you know, gases or chemicals in their liquid form. And so, um, yeah, there's this pressure. So once you get outside of that atmosphere, then this thing that our body was evolved to take advantage of and thrive in is gone. So the pressure is gone. Our Earth actually shields us from radiation from the sun, as well as other sort of cosmic radiation that just sort of is out in the universe trying to destroy everything. Yeah, that's why there's no Fantastic Four in real life. <laughs> exactly. We can't handle that. Yeah, the radiation like does not turn you into a superhero. It, it turns you into a uh, dying person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It turns you essentially into muck. Yes, yeah. So like watch Chernobyl, for example, of what happens when you get exposure to high amounts of radiation. Hor- horrifying. Yeah. The TV show specifically on HBO. Yeah. And then, of course, there is no water outside of the earth. There's no oxygen outside of. And I'm talking about the immediate outside of like there probably are these things on other bodies out in the universe, but we're not anywhere near close enough to any of them to take advantage of what little they might have. Yeah. Or a lot, depending you know where they're at. But anyway, so those are all the all the things that we normally would need that are not available to us once we have exited our our little comfort zone. Yeah. Here on on the surface of this planet. Yeah. And and there's probably going to be a day that we're going to talk about like what it might look like to travel to another place and like planets that are in Goldilocks habitable zones, which are essentially celestial bodies that orbit, you know, different gaseous stars and have like the appropriate temperature and heat and all the things that like make life possible on those planets. But 
We're not talking about that. We're talking about these extreme places. And despite these dangers that we've talked about, humans still seem to gravitate to these places. People are explorers. Yeah. They want to go to the deep ocean where Cthulhu lives. They want to explore <laughs> the Sahara deserts. Sure. They want to go to the Antarctic and they want to do all these things. And we go to really great lengths to explore these really uninhabitable, human uninhabitable places. So, for example, to explore oceans, we've invented things like submarines. And at some point, somebody said, that's not enough. We need to go deeper. <laughs> and we explore, we developed submersibles to go even further. And and even then there are dangers with going so deep and the pressures. And, and that's why you have things like the bends. Yeah. And there's some really cool history about some of the diving apparatuses and their evolution and inventions and whatnot, because for such a long time, because people didn't have access to lights that they could shine you know, once they got deep in the ocean, they didn't have a thing where they could breathe. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd try just like having like a tube, yeah. you know, go down and you'd be able to like breathe, you know, like 30 feet underwater. And that's all very exciting. But the ocean was just such a mystery. Yeah. So there's, there's some cool history just about that. But it's cool to see, as you sort of said, like, this isn't enough. We need to know more. And then, you know, people invent new ways of yeah. seeing further, of going deeper, of pushing the the envelope. Yeah, and we're going to talk about some of the innovations that like like programs like NASA have come up with that have made stuff like space travel possible because it is really incredible how creative humans have gotten to make this stuff happen. Yeah. So another example of these these extreme environments here are the Antarctic bases that we have created. Antarctica is one of those few places where you're just not going to find a whole lot of people, mm -hmm. but we have nevertheless established these research bases there that have you know, they have to have unique heating systems and food storage processes to ensure that people can survive and sustain their environment there because we just it's it's just not an environment in which we can be very successful otherwise. Right. I mean, people who live in like Minnesota probably know how to layer. Yeah. But you can't layer enough here to survive in a really meaningful way. Like like you can, but it's not really that great. Like it's you're you're not going to survive as 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 well as you would. In a place that like has more temperate weather, you know? Yeah, Canadians are, are maybe in a better position to <laughs> you know visit Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. Our friend friend of the show, Brendan, can tell you all about how cold it is up there. Yeah. You've also got desert exploration in where we have had to create strategies to be able to transport and maintain food rations and protect against the elements over long periods of time. And and either you acquire a ton of planting supplies or you're just Australian. Like, I feel like Australians are really equipped for like desert. Like if you look at like anything that has to do with the outback, it does not make sense that anybody lives on that rock. But, you know, I was going to say Arizona, but but that's, you know, Australia is, is good. That's a good point. I feel like Australians make Arizonans look like novices. I'll say. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Shots fired. Uh, that's it. That's it. I hey, l listen, nothing wrong with Arizona. I live in a I live in a tropical environment. I I, I, I could not survive in the desert. Like more power to our Arizona folks, but Australia is a whole nother level. If you're playing video games, it's on it's on extreme, extreme difficulty. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, there there's a moment in there I think you had your most uh, Rick Sanchez sort of uh moment that you've had. Uh, did I? <laughs> In sort of line delivery. It was great. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I appreciate that. So there is obviously a certain amount of grit training and I mean, just bravery really that goes into preparing to go into these extreme environments. You know, Shane, Shane can attest to this is from, from a tropical yeah. Florida world. Uh -huh. Humans aren't meant to be in these places, particularly Florida. It takes a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Here we are. So what does it take? What does it take? How do we, how do we prepare someone? I guess both physically and psychologically to enter these spaces where your life is 
so much more at risk. So we're going to talk about what it takes to be an astronaut. Specifically for NASA. So we we I pulled a lot of data and information just for what it looks like for to, to work at NASA, which is the, uh, the the space program here in the United States. And so in order to become an astronaut for NASA, you have to meet the following requirements. First, you have to be born here or be a U.S. citizen. Right. So like you have to be a U.S. citizen one way or another. You can either gain citizenship or you can be born here. But you also have to possess a master's degree in a STEM field, which includes engineering, biological science, physical science, computer science or mathematics from an accredited university, and it has to be within a related field like that. Interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. Already weeded out a lot, potential candidates. Yeah, so far, we're good. Yeah. So far, the Why We Do What We Do crew is on point. We can be astronauts so far. So far. You also have to have at least two years of related professional experience obtained after degree completion, or at least a 1,000 pilot in command time on a jet craft. So mm-hmm. now I'm no longer in the in the running. Yeah. So yeah, that, that, that ruled us both out. So, so that's kind of a a whole thing. So, so you also have to be able to pass the NASA long duration astronaut physical, which we're going to talk about this because this is really the thing that weeds out the most people. So right now we could be like, Oh, maybe we'll get some experience and we could go in, but we have to be physically fit to go to space. All right. So let's address this long duration flight astronaut physical Mm -hmm. in order to be an astronaut. You have to be in good shape. You have to be fit. Yeah. So again, ruled out for me. Yep. (laughs) Me too. And you have to pass so many types of trainings to be able to even qualify to set foot on a spacecraft. Yeah. They are. They take this very, very seriously. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So potential candidates with NASA go through a lengthy process just to be able to be possibly selected. Like this is the equivalent of like a few years ago, Led Zeppelin did a reunion show like they were doing a reunion tour and like you could get to into like being in a lottery to maybe buy tickets like that's what kind of happened. My dad ended up being able to buy tickets to go see Led Zeppelin somehow in London. And that's the only time my dad's ever flown international. He flew into London, saw Led Zeppelin and left like huh. London of all places, which is such a cool city to visit, I feel like. But sure. the idea is that you have to go through this whole process just to be possibly selected. But once you're selected, you're considered an astronaut candidate. And begin training at the Johnson Space Center, which is also abbreviated as JSC in Houston, Texas. So you have to go through a process to possibly be an astronaut candidate. And that doesn't even guarantee that you'll be on the on the spaceship. And part of the trial here is then you have to go to Texas. Yeah, which is a whole thing. (laughs) So when they are designated as astronaut candidates, they undergo two years of training and evaluation. Now, a key point here. They also include evaluation. So not everyone who becomes an astronaut candidate is then subsequently selected to actually be an astronaut. Yeah, this is really important. This training process does not mean that you're going to be involved in space flight. What this means is that you're going to be constantly evaluated as a potential candidate. And if you can make it through those two years and pass all the evaluations, then you're still possibly considered maybe not even selected even after all that. Now, here are some requirements that are that are necessary to become, and this is just some of the requirements, and this is a pretty lengthy list as it is. First is that you have to undergo extensive and ongoing medical screenings. There's a reason why they do this for two years, because your health status can change so rapidly within that time frame that they can't select you and be like, okay, next week you're going to space. They have to make sure that you can maintain a healthy lifestyle for some period of time. Right. You have to demonstrate military water survival before beginning flight training. I'm not sure what that entails. 
Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about that in a second. Like, so just like okay. some of the different tests that go along with that. Okay. But a lot of military water survival is also like how long you can hold your breath, oh. how long you can like swim for, uh, you know, like in choppy waters, in in dangerous waters, like that. Swimming with clothes on, swimming like carrying equipment, like that kind of. It's like a lot of stuff like that. Got it. Falling into water from high altitudes because that's that they actually think that's what happened with the Challenger crew. Mm. The Challenger crew didn't die in the explosion. They ended up dying when they hit the water. Yikes. Which is like horrible and grim, obviously. But that's what that's what they think happened. You also have to become scuba certified because you're going to be working in a space where you're in a breathing apparatus and you're immersed in a space that is not hospitable to humans. So you have to be able to be scuba certified at the highest level. And similar to to all of these things is you must pass the swimming test during the first month of training and you must swim three lengths of a 25 meter pool without stopping. So uh-huh. you know, this is a decent distance, honestly. I mean, you're, yeah. you're talking, what is that, 225 feet, maybe? Yeah, ish? roughly. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. In American measurements. Yeah. <laughs> in our imperial system. In freedom measures. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you have to swim uh, the three lengths of the same pool in a flight suit and tennis shoes. I mean, yeah. Why make it easy? Yeah. And then obviously you have to be able to tread water continuously for ten minutes in a flight suit. And I say obviously because, because. If you think about like why you know why this made sense, a lot of what happened was like in the early space flights where astronauts were uh, like on the Saturn missions and all the the Apollo missions and all that. What you found was that they were they were doing water landings, right? Like when they re-entered, they were doing water landings where, you know, shuttle astronauts were landing on runways and in landing like planes. You weren't having that same thing with with our uh, with our astronauts before. So they were doing water landings. And and if the, if there was some reason where maybe the capsule started leaking or it was damaged on in re-entry, then they would have to to tread water and, and do that until the rescue team got there until the recovery teams got there. Which should only be about 10 minutes, which should be about 10 minutes. But, you know, you never know. <laughs> they also have to be exposed to varying conditions of hyperbaric and, hi- and hypobaric. Uh, so high and low atmospheric pressures in altitude chambers. So they do this a couple different ways. And they would also during those exposures to those different pressures, they would actually have them engage in different tasks, like different scientific tasks. And so like it would kind of, they would kind of gauge how well somebody could think under these uh, conditions. Hypobaric seems to be the more relevant one. Yeah. Since you're going to be in a totally atmosphereless environment. Right. Well, and so and the reason they they try hyperbaric is because if something goes wrong with the equipment on the space station or in the shuttles or all that, it can actually increase the pressure because like that's part of like. Oh. So there's like the, there's like different like artificial atmospheres that are involved in, in space flight, too. Got it. Okay. Yeah. They're generally going to ensure that you're exposed to emergencies within each of these conditions, trying to plan for all eventualities. I think one of the hallmarks here is just of, I guess, NASA, but specifically in this training is you want your astronauts to be prepared as much as possible for all of the eventualities they might encounter that are going to be potentially life threatening, which is a lot. Which is a lot. Uh, Yeah, this is a very, very dangerous thing to do. And they do a lot of training in microgravity conditions. And what they do with this during this time is they'll use these modified jets. If you see the OK Go video where they are in the plane and they do that. Yeah. Those are the types of jets they use to do this. As a matter of fact, during Apollo 13, when they were filming that, they filmed so much of the anti-gravity scenes in these jets. The, the, The actors actually had more training than astronauts in those those conditions because they had to shoot so much in these in these jets now 
what these jets do is they reproduce a low gravity condition. And basically what happens is these low gravity conditions last for about 20 seconds. The exercise is practiced up to 40 times in a single training session. So they are spending a lot of time doing these sessions and these trainings and these jets. What they do is they'll go to a certain altitude and then they'll drop essentially. Right. And they'll drop rapidly, which produces the feeling of anti-gravity for a period of time. And then it'll level out and then it'll, it'll increase altitude again and they'll do that. So imagine just like the world's worst roller coaster. Yeah. Like that would make me so sick. Like I, that's right. how I know I can't be an astronaut. Like my, I would have to have so much Dramamine on these shit on these trips. Like, cause there's no way I'd survive. I have heard that people who go through this, usually the first time or two that there's a lot of vomiting involved because of how of the just violent motions of being first weightless for a moment, or at least it feels that way as you're, as you're essentially in free fall, just inside of the jet. Yeah. And then after that, your weight is essentially doubled as you climb back up in the atmosphere yeah. to do it again. I feel like I would be really interested in trying it. And I also feel like I would get very sick very quickly. Yeah. I get sick when I'm looking at my phone in a moving car. So like right. I could imagine, I could imagine this will, this will, this would like turn my stomach so quickly. Now we've just been describing the training so far. You could hypothetically go through all of that and still not be selected to be an astronaut to be selected. Graduates from the astronaut candidate program must complete some additional steps if they're going to be chosen and have the opportunity to perform as an astronaut, someone in space. Yep. And one of them is international space station systems training. Although as the international space station crumbles with age, maybe that's going <laughs> to change. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, it's been up there for a while, so it's lasted some time now. Yeah. Part of that training also involves language training because it is an international space station. And the expectation is that there is some kind of crossover with the Russian space program and the cosmonauts, too. So there's going to be like the, you're learning these systems in dual languages. Yeah. Another one is extra vehicular activity skills training. So that's like using the tools in the in the, the that they would use to like kind of explore and do spacewalks. They would do uh, a couple things like uh, like the robotic arms that would be used to grab the satellites and deliver payloads and stuff. They, they've got to learn how to do that. Yeah. Robotics skills training. They use a lot of robots in these missions because robots can endure situations that humans do not easily endure. Mm -hmm. So they're a really good candidate for helping with some of those things. Yeah. Robots don't need to breathe. So it's great. Russian language training, because again, if you're on the International Space Station, those programs, NASA and the Russian space programs are partnered now, which is interesting to think that like the whole thing really started because they hated each other so much. They're like, we're getting to the moon first. Yeah. And now they're like, now they're partners in this. And so like the Russian language training is is part of the program now. I'm forgetting how many different countries have access to the the space station, because I, I know it's it's more than three but I don't remember how many it is. Yeah. But it makes me wonder if you have to have some amount of familiarity with all of them or if it's just like who you're going to overlap with at the time that you're there. Yeah. Know. Yeah. And they didn't really specify that. I didn't find the information about like what the overlap is and like what other language training they do. As you might imagine, because these are essentially pilots. I mean, these are people who are going to be in these crafts that go into space and then come back from space. There is a requirement to have aircraft flight readiness training. A lot of simulations, a lot of actual practice as well. And that's going to entail a lot of activities that are necessary for not just piloting, but piloting like extreme circumstances, much faster, much more turbulent yeah. sort of conditions than a pilot might otherwise encounter. 
Right. I mean, because you figure that you might be able to fly a plane where there is Earth's gravity. You might be able to uh, operate a machine that is operating at different altitudes. But like this changes entirely when you work in a space that doesn't have friction. So like that changes the entirety of like trajectories, how you land when you're coming in. Like, I mean, like there's the like reentry is like a really serious feat. So much so they had to invent new material to be able to safely reenter the atmosphere. Like just because of the heat and the and, and all that that goes along with the friction, because you're operating in a space where there is literally no friction. Right. So very specialized training. Now, if you're a civilian, like we are, and you are selected for the program, like we won't be, <laughs> and you actually get selected, you become a fe- a permanent federal employee. So like you become a a government employee for the rest of your life. But if you are not selected, graduates like this is and these are people who are graduates, like not just a candidate. Like you graduate from this program and they say, "Great, good job. You can be an astronaut. Come join us." If you aren't selected, the graduates could still be selected for other employment opportunities. They might work in some of the ground control spaces. They might a- operate in like astronaut training programs. They might operate in some systems programs. Like there's a lot of things they could do outside of that. So just because you don't get to be an astronaut doesn't mean you don't get to participate in the program. If you can't be an astronaut, you just clean garbage cans. That's it. Yeah. 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 You get to empty. You get to empty the commode when the shuttle gets back. <laughs> All right. Hey, Shane. Yeah. What's up? Why do we go where we go? <laughs> we almost said the name. We do it in the name of science, of course. Yeah. And this is why I think I wanted to be an astronaut. It wasn't because I like, I always found space fascinating, but like there are really two primary things that we look at here for why we choose to go to any extreme environment to further study and explore these uncharted territories and to see if we actually can like to see if humans can survive in these spaces. I mean, right now, NASA, we'll talk about a couple programs they're running, but like the idea is like, can we make this work? Can we exist on another planet? That's not hospitable humans. Like, can we do this? And within those questions, there's a lot to unpack, right? Like if we can, then that talks about our physiology, our psychology, that talks about our grit, that talks about the processes and the training that we need to sustain those. There's a, there's so much stuff that goes into it, but We want to explore. We want to see if we can do it. And we've had on the docket for some time to talk about adrenaline junkies. So that's still in an upcoming discussion that we plan to have. And we'll we're going to focus a little bit more on that in our analysis. Yeah. And we'll talk about the that specific aspect of it more in that that discussion. But that is also sort of part of this, as you said, is that there is a bit of. I think the thrill of doing this. Although I think that that's intrinsically wrapped up in some other things that we'll get to a little bit later, but that's, you know, I think a consideration for people who are motivated to pursue this line of work. Yeah, absolutely. So exploring extreme environments have led to a couple different things. Like while people kind of, they have the bravery and the grit and they want to go do these things, it's also led to a lot of advancements. So first it's led to technological advancements that that are required to enable us to survive in those spaces, including different technologies. Like, and we'll talk about different inventions that have come from NASA as a result of this, but these technological advancements have been used and given to the public in some circumstances. Teflon is an example of, of something that was invented as part of like these types of programs. So like, I mean, not the Teflon is great for the environment by any means, but it, it was kind of a cool thing to see like something that was invented in this program, be able to use in like the, the space age. And that's, Part of the justification for how I think people who are interested in science, who are interested in these endeavors, who generally support the idea of like space exploration and astronauts and that sort of thing, they will point to the benefits that have come out of this research that were sort of incidental, but ended up being really 
I think widely enjoyed and adopted by people as some of the inventions that have come out of that. Another thing that has come out of this and part of honestly the intention of the mission of going to space in general is to gain valuable insight into the nature of the universe in which we live. And many of these expeditions have led to understanding how the human body endures and adapts to these environments. And so an example of this recently is there was two twins where one stayed on Earth and the other one went to space and they were looking at difference in their genes and other things, uh, how those were affected by going to space, health outcomes, that sort of thing. And there was one of the few opportunities they've ever had to do that where they had two people who basically could qualify to be astronauts and decided, let's just send one of you to space so we can see we have a direct comparison, more or less, yeah, in terms of the effect on on you. And so that was uh, Scott Kelly and his brother. Kelly Scott. Kelly Scott, yeah. We are going to talk about that study in more depth. Uh, that is the Garrett Backelman uh, et al. 2019 study. Okay. But yeah, that was a really fascinating study. Basically, it led to saying like, yes, we can, and it's okay. Yeah. Another part of this is like in space flight, experts refer to the concept of long flight duration or long duration psychology. And so why do we do this? And part of it is like, why or why do we go where we go and understanding where we go? Part of it is the psychology that goes along with this. So this specifically refers to prolonged exposure to frightening, dangerous and highly tense circumstances and their impact on psychological well-being of the person. So essentially, people think that space is cool and it is. But when you're in those space, it is always dangerous. You are one errant meteor from dying. You are one technological advancement, uh, you know, crashing. And, and I imagine there's probably a number of emergencies that happen on these, these flights that people don't talk about, but you are always surrounded by some, like you're always, everything around you wants you dead. It's, it's like living in Florida. And even more so. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like Florida with no air. As a quick note, some of the astronauts who have really enjoyed these trips and have done this have noted that this was the the space flight specifically was the hardest thing they have ever had to do. Yeah, and I think considering that essentially this is it is kind of a traumatic experience. I mean, you're in perpetual danger in space flight, regardless of duration. It is just ongoing danger all the time. Yes, yes, and that's that's tough. That's a tough thing I think to deal with in any capacity. And the thing is, the margin for error is also extremely small. A single system error could mean you know, life or death. So there's this continuous stress of, you know, don't make any mistakes, don't mess up, you know, do everything exactly right the first time, no matter what. And that's what the crew is sort of faced with and tasked with. And not only that, but it might be, there was a thing that we didn't prepare for that you need to on the fly, improvise a solution or everyone here will die. And like, those are the kind of stakes that they're faced with. And so again, this is a very, very high stress environment legitimately like the challenges that came up in Apollo 13 are legit challenges. I mean, that flight was a dangerous, dangerous mission and they almost didn't survive. Like now the movie obviously exaggerates that stuff, but it's not far off. I mean, the Challenger right. exploded because of an O-ring, not because of anything else, because of a rubber seal. That's why it exploded. And like the, just something as simple as a corrosion in one piece of equipment on this thing could mean life or death. So now there are other things, right? So besides kind of the stressors that go along with like just the fact that you're always in danger, there are some other contexts that actually impact the crew that they've noted. The first thing is the high danger, the systems failures, the problem solving issues, all the things that we just mentioned. But the other thing is sensory deprivation. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah. When you think about this, the sensory deprivation related to low gravity, that is something that some astronauts had mentioned is a very difficult thing to adjust to. 
and can actually cause like a lot of unique kind of sensory feelings in, in those folks. And that includes things like you, the things that we're sort of take for granted here on earth is access to regular sunlight at regular intervals, just feeling the breeze on our skin or blowing through our hair, you know, and hearing it, you know, all of these little features are things that we're, we're sort of used to. And even taking away those little things can have a really large impact. You don't necessarily think about the fact that being able to just use the restroom, for example, depends on gravity. And so they had to specifically engineer these ways to allow astronauts who have to use the restroom, but don't have the advantage of gravity. That makes it really tough. Drinking liquid, for example, it just it doesn't go down your mouth or down your throat the way you would normally think. And so they had to invent new ways of delivering liquid to the person who's drinking it. If you're in a low gravity or, or, you know, basically almost no gravity in those in those cases in in those situations, because otherwise it's, it's very uncomfortable and it might be very messy. And so there's all these little things you don't necessarily think of. Um, even as as you sort of mentioned, like feeling the breezes, just being able to like inhale and smell like your environment is is something that we more or less are used to. And so when you're in this super sterile world where it's just, you know, recycling everyone's burps and farts all day long. Um. <laughs> yeah. It's a problem that we take for granted. Like you said, I mean, yeah. like there's, it, there's really great videos of like, they've done a really good job of disseminating kind of like the life of an astronaut in the last few years. And mm-hmm. you'll see kind of like videos from the space station and from shuttles and whatnot of astronauts, like washing their hair, they have to use dry shampoo and they have to like brush water into their hair and then they can't let the water fly around in the systems. Like they have to like be really careful with that. There's a lot of really interesting things that have come up that they had to really problem solve. The toilets I found were really interesting. Like you have to like have enough butt to have a suction, which is again, wow. I like I have a frog butt, so I can't, I can't like I look like a frog standing on its hind legs. So like I have a real <laughs> tiny little or like Hank Hill. So like I I don't have I, I couldn't be an astronaut for that reason. Wow. There's so many reasons we can't. Yeah. There's also the loss of sense of time and altering sleep patterns. So we've talked about sleep so many times on this. And it, of course, we come back to sleep on the show. Right. But what ends up happening is every 45 minutes, sunrise and sunset alternates for, for astronauts. Uh, imagine your day is going from like 12 hours of light and 12 hours of dark to straight up 45 minutes alternating. It's just like it's just so rapid that it just alters sleep patterns for those folks. So as you might imagine, you're on the space station. You've got like a couple of people around you, but that's kind of it. It is extremely isolating. There is a lot of deprivation from social stimulation. Astronauts are disconnected from their culture, their loved ones, humanity at large. They just have this small contingent of people. And the nearest soul outside of that is very inaccessible from your place. And so very difficult sort of socially, I think, to adjust to that type of situation. Yeah. One thing that comes up, and you would think that with the the millions and millions and millions of dollars they're spending on these programs, they would make sure the astronauts stayed busy. Well, sometimes there's deprivation for meaningful work, right? So what ends up happening, uh, like astronaut Norm Thagard had actually had to wait for experiments to arrive to be able to do work. So like different payloads, different rockets, different shuttle deliveries to the ISS. International Space Station, there is all the stuff that happened where some of the astronauts just had a ton of downtime. And I cannot for the life of me imagine planning a, a, a space flight mission for millions of dollars and being like, you'll have like 12 hour gaps in your schedule. Yeah, I think, you know, what what do you do when you're trapped in a, in a small box for 
an indefinite period of time. Well, not indefinite, but you know, it could be months at a time. And like, you can't go out and acquire more work for yourself. So once you've sort of done the things that you need to do, then you're left with, I guess I'll uh, clean the corners of the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is probably already clean because if they get dust anywhere, it's a problem. It's true. So yeah, that's that's very understandable that that would be the case. And these are small spaces, which means that the the place for you to stay, to have your own private area is limited. You've got limited quarters for sleeping, for storing personal effects, for even having some amount of privacy. That's that's definitely something that's tricky for a lot of people who most people generally want privacy. Yeah. And and that's that's something you've got to compromise when you're in the situation. And people have been up there for over a year, you know, so imagining a year where you've got limited space to yourself. That was basically the pandemic of 2020 yeah. <laughs> into 2021. Could you imagine future. the pandemic hitting and you're like stuck in a space station when that happens? It's like, oh God, like why <laughs> I don't want to come back. I mean, people, I imagine if you want to stay in space for a year, you probably don't want to come back anyway, but like that might not sweeten the pot, you know? Sure. And so despite all those concerns, the stressors, many astronauts claim that going to space was one of the most rewarding and incredible experiences of their lives. I mean, I think I would feel the same way. I would very much put myself in danger, assuming I met even half of the list of qualifications, which I apparently do not. But I would definitely go to space if I was able to. And, and you know, it makes sense given that only a select few humans have even been able to experience space flight. Basically, right now, you just have people who are super trained and people who are super rich. And that's those are the only people who can go up there. Yeah, exactly. So because it's so it's so incredibly dangerous. I mean, that's yeah. really what it is. It's so incredibly dangerous and it's expensive. It's right. very expensive to get up there. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the studies that have been done around this, because I think people think NASA is just about sending rockets into space. But a lot of everything they're doing is absolutely scientific endeavors right? right they're all they're studying all these different things they're studying how humans react they're studying how plants can be grown in space they're doing all these things and so abraham alluded to this before but we talked about the study the the garrett beckelman uh et al 2019 study that was published that talked about long-term space habituation and it used twins you scott kelly and kelly scott to <laughs> where where one twin Stayed on the planet like a logical person, like a normal person. They stayed on the planet and the other went to space. What they noted during this was while there were some minor biological changes, it was determined mostly that humans could sustain life for extended periods of time in those extreme conditions. They also found that despite the extreme conditions, cognition remained relatively unchanged. So they actually found that there wasn't like a difference in cognition among the two twins, despite the long duration flight. And there was a change in some of their biology. One thing that has been noted is people who go to space tend to come back a little bit taller. And part of that is because you're not on the planet where gravity is pulling your body down against itself. And so when you're out in space, it kind of stretches out and goes in, in, in different directions. And so if you were really wanted that extra inch, you might consider trying to be a, an astronaut as well. Yeah. So where's Skilo? Skilo, get on a flight. Keeps wishing he was a little bit taller. He just needs more qualifications. <laughs> All right. Several studies conducted by NASA found several interesting things. I mean, they do a lot of missions. Basically, the missions and studies are, are sort of used synonymously. So they're looking at like how plants 
grow in space and stressors and things like that. But one study found that astronauts would displace frustration and anger toward the mission control staff. Basically, they would lash out at the mission con- control staff on Earth. So bummer for mission control, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I imagine them going, Houston, we have a problem. You're an asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, stuff like mission that. control is like, I hold your life in my hands. Do you really want to be saying that? This is the most extreme equivalent of like, don't mess with people who make your food. Right. And this was really important because within this study, they talked about how group cohesion was really um, kind of an interesting thing. So we're going to talk about that in a second. Like they couldn't fight with each other because they had to stay together to make the missions work. Right. And so they took it out of the people that didn't really, that weren't there with them. They sort of needed a common enemy and that that got to be Texas, which is, you know, I mean, understandable. That's most people's common enemy. So same, same. (laughs) Russian cosmonauts were found to have greater language flexibility than American astronauts, which, you know, I think that you could probably, what's really great about this is this is not a new discovery. That like Americans have less language flexibility. I mean, we live in a country where we think that English is the, or I'm sorry, that we think American is the official language. Sure. So when you have that kind of like cultural upbringing, it makes sense that other nations might have more flexibility in those spaces. So, so that to me is like a really interesting generalization study. Are you trying to say that American is not our official language? No, it's not. Everybody gets it wrong. It's freedom. Okay. Freedom is our language. I'll tolerate that and say, I will fight you. (laughs) (laughs) That is your right as an American. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) I'm an AK-47. Like, how dare you? (laughs) Punishable by death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll just block block you with my McDonald's. There you go. (laughs) My McDonald's franchise that I bought with a loan that I couldn't afford. Sure. From from a predatory bank. (laughs) Oh, American culture. Welcome. I mean, not welcome, actually. Get out. The American Unless way. you look like us. That's that's true. All right. Russian cosmonauts also reported higher levels of tension in the ISS than Americans. Part of it was that it was somehow even colder than where they were from and that they, I think, are not allowed to drink. And so just kidding. <laughs> no, you're just kidding. It's probably because they had to deal with Americans. That's probably it. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm totally joking. I, I, I don't mean to throw Russians under the bus on that one. I think we have Russian fans if we're allowed. Some crew members experienced something called psychological closing, where they would significantly filter what they would share with personnel outside of the crew. So like they started getting more closed in and they started being more private. Interesting. Interesting. Group cohesion was deemed a highly necessary component of successful missions and groups that celebrated success and social achievements reportedly had better cohesion. So I guess it makes sense that people who tend to find ways to validate one another and enjoy their accomplishments as a team and reinforce one another's behaviors tend to uh, work better as a group. We have found that to be true in all other settings with humans also. So yeah, that tracks. Yeah. Makes sense. Another nice generalization study with on orbit space missions. The largest psychological concerns that arose were transient feelings of anxiety and depression, as well as psychosomatic reactions. So they found those were the bigger psychological concerns. There wasn't anything like space sickness. Like you see with Steve Buscemi and Armageddon, when he starts kind of losing his mind on the asteroid, like that, that doesn't happen. They didn't find that to happen with astronauts. I mean, to be fair though, we haven't actually tried to send Steve Buscemi to space for real. So it could happen. I don't know. He's he's a pretty like he's got some grit. He was a firefighter. I think he'll be okay. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I love Steve Bajemi. I'm totally joking. Yeah. No, he's great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of other people we can send in this into like non-return space missions. We can send them to space. I'm fine with that. We can start with the Kardashians. <laughs> Put them on a rocket. Put them on a rocket somewhere. That's right. We just want to see what it 
is like when you fly directly into the moon. Um, <laughs> thank thank you for know. your service. We haven't done that yet. Yeah. Thank you for your service. We appreciate it. Well, oh, it's a one-time study. We don't have to do that again. That's right. Have you at all paid attention to the show Miracle Workers? I haven't, but he plays God in that, doesn't he? In the first season, yes. They sort of started treating it as an anthology sort of series where each season is a different story, it seems. So they're coming up on the third season. It's something, maybe it's out. I don't know. But the first season, Steve Buscemi plays God. And I actually think he's one of these few people where I actually think he has gotten better looking over time as he ages. He sort of has, he sort of aged into himself. Yeah. And so I think uh, he is actually looking more attractive. I feel like Willem Dafoe has that where he's like, he's kind of like gotten comfortable with his look and like leaned into his look. And he's like, no, this works. I mean, I heard he was great in lighthouse. I did not see lighthouse, but I think to your point, he did sort of look like a wrinkly frog when he was younger. And I think he's starting to look like a, a human, uh, a normal human as he, as he grows, (laughs) grows and ages. Yeah. We support that. We like that. So, There are some other facts that we want to share about this, because as you can tell, there's a lot of psychology that goes into this. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of stress that goes into this. I think that illustrates a a very interesting thing. First of all, there have only been 339 selected astronauts at this time, at the time of this recording. And this is for the United States. Yeah. Because Russian astronauts are called cosmonauts. So astronauts are like specific to Florida, not to Florida. That's a whole different. Yeah, that's a a different thing. (laughs) So astronauts are specific to NASA. There's only been 339 selected, which means you have to be very, you have a very, very, very slim chance of being one with NASA. Now, this is where we cue Jeff Bezos and our lawsuit with Amazon and all that stuff because he's got his own thing going on. Yeah. We have realized that Amazon's our mortal enemy. And I mean, Elon Musk is also one of these who is in a similar position. Not that he's necessarily our mortal enemy, maybe immortal enemy. He's on his way. um, Yeah. He's working on it. (laughs) Yeah. He's he's doing a real good job. He's doing a real good job of making that happen. Yeah. Yeah, the the supervillains that all hang out in like the supervillain pub together, definitely they're the people that we've mentioned are there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. So uh, the shuttle program for NASA has been discontinued for some time. Uh, NASA is currently working on at least three major projects, and that could include building a colony on the moon, building a a launch pad on the moon uh, for travel around our solar system and for an expedition to Mars. So those are all things that are going on. But right now, the shuttle mission, the reason that we haven't gone back in several decades is because uh, the shuttle mission has been discontinued. But those are projects that are currently in the works. You know, I think one of the things that people raised as a concern, as you mentioned, was the cost. It is enormously expensive and it's like tens of thousands of dollars per pound to send something to space. You know, so just like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to bring my Ikea moon base, you know, up to space with me. So I can assemble it when I get there um, would be like millions of dollars to carry it up there. So they got to find other ways to do it. And one of the suggestions has been to essentially 3d print everything up there, but millions of dollars to get it there, not millions of dollars for the cost of the materials, for right. the Trading all that it's millions of dollars just to fly it there. Right. So yes, very, 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 very expensive. All of this stuff. One thing I, I think is really important, like something that I learned pretty recently was like with the shuttle programs, you see the shuttle itself, right? You've got the the actual like aircraft itself and then you've got that big orange fuel tank and then the two booster rockets. And that's usually like the picture that everybody remembers. It's like those sure. four components. Yeah. And when it launches, what ends up happening is the booster rockets break off and then the, the fuel tank breaks off and then the shuttle is the thing that 
goes into space and then comes back. Yeah. The only thing that's renewable on all of that are the booster rockets and the shuttle, the fuel tank. There's a brand new fuel tank for every single space flight because it disintegrates on the way in on its return. Man, just I heard of illustrate how much waste there is. I mean, they, they really tried to make it renewable, but that was one of the things they like. That was the only thing they couldn't renew. And that's why these retro rockets on the SpaceX rocket has been so important is that they can actually maintain the rockets and use them for a landing, which has been demonstrated a myriad of times in science fiction, but is extremely difficult to pull off in real life. And so the the fact that this is that they've been able to make this work at all, even though it has mostly failed, is still a tremendous accomplishment and and re- really bodes well for the future. Yeah, absolutely. So some people might say. Why explore space when we have problems on Earth? I hear you and I hear Prince William both say in unison, I understand, (laughs) but hear us out. Without the space programs, we wouldn't have these other inventions that have been super helpful for humanity. These space programs have really developed a lot of things that have been able to translate to benefits on Earth. So the first one being memory foam mattresses. I mean, that's not like a thing that everybody accesses, but that is one thing that because of the foam and the technology, the silicone foams that they have invented within these programs, they've been been able to develop these. Interesting. Another is cochlear implants, which we talked about in our episodes on hearing. Those are kind of remarkable inventions. And so that's kind of cool. Yeah. You've also got scratch resistant eyeglass lenses because they had to make glass that was not subject to things like the cosmic particles that would like scratch up the the windows. They had to be able to see and get into returns and all that. They had to return to earth. So they actually invented like different processes to make glass scratch resistant. And that contributed to squid game. Yep. There are also these life shears, which are basically just more portable and affordable jaws of life. So these giant cutting tools sort of things that are helpful for manipulating very difficult things to manipulate. They also helped invent something called charge coupled devices, which basically allows light to be converted into data, which makes it so that data can travel faster, more efficiently. It doesn't require uh, things like a bunch of wires connected to everything. Like it's a pretty impressive type of specific technology that we use on a day-to-day basis. That's why we have Wi-Fi. Wow. Awesome. I'll take it. Yeah. Apparently, Insulin pumps were also something that came out of this, which this is definitely not one that I had heard. So that's that's uh, sort of mind boggling to me. Yeah. And also more efficient water filters, like having to invest in water filters so that they could actually use renewable water. And when we say water filters, we're not just talking about like like we're talking about like really like Brita Walter water filters, stuff that's cleaning out like a lot of like micro bio, like biology and like a lot of like the, the detritus that's in this type of water. Like, I mean, they really invented like and honed in on really good water filter systems. Yeah, like the still suits on Dune. Yeah. Now, everyone knows that if to be an astronaut means that you are walking away a wealthy, wealthy person, right? Uh, psych! Nope. Astronauts get paid based on academic achievements and experience, but really an astronaut makes anywhere between about $64,724 a year to uh, up to $141,715 per year. And so, you know... I, that's not uncomfortable, but that's not also like doing really well for having put your life in danger. Like for, for being one of 339 people that yeah. have been to space and have contributed to the, the, the types of things that we are talking about. And just that, like, it's just a, to me, that was such a bizarre number to think that like, you would think that maybe an astronaut would make closer to like 500,000 a year, just because like, sure. it's just, I mean, I feel like that would be more reasonable, 
Like the fact that LeBron James makes more than an astronaut is mind blowing to me. You know, I always thought it was strange when I learned that like professional athletes make significantly more than like the president does. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, the president's got to be the richest person in the country. Nope. nope. <laughs> not, what? Not annual salary of 400,000? Yeah. Not compared to just so many other sectors. So not necessarily a money making gig unless you, of course, manipulate the country and the economy to favor your your financial institutions like some presidents have done mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. recently. Fairly recently. Yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting, but I feel like overall um, it would be worth it. I think I would still, I think I would still do it. Yeah, I, I would too. And then actually, I think brings us to sort of wrapping up with our take homes here. And one of the things that we have sort of alluded to, but not touched on super cohesively, and that's why I would like to take a moment now to say, I think when we talk about what it takes to be an astronaut and why someone would want to do this in the first place, is it's useful to talk about our values. And because in this particular instance, understanding that when people do anything, they do it because it it is important to them in some way. And usually they get something out of that experience. And one of the things that a lot of the people who are involved in these process, I think, have in common is a value generally of like science. And they that means that they value the scientific process. They value the scientific discovery. They value communication with people when they make these discoveries. And that's that's, I think, a huge motivator is that they're up there because there's something that they that they can contribute to that maybe feels like it's it's their purpose or it's their something that they get to feel proud of having been able to do. And I think there are other values as well that are wrapped up in this, but I would suspect that at least that value is relatively common among most people who choose to do something that's this dangerous. Yeah. And I think that's where it gets frustrating when you have people like Jeff Bezos who have created like commercial space flight or, or uh, you know, like this, this type of idea of like people like space tourism, where it's like you've got people who are spending millions and millions of dollars just for an experience. They're not like, and I think that's why I really liked the space programs is because it always led to answering questions and asking more questions to understand the world around us. You know, the, the, the space programs were always something that were so pervasive in my community. And when we talked about them, it was never about space is cool. It was space is cool because we learned X, Y, and Z from this one mission. Space is cool because this is what we know about the moon, which is, uh, by the way, the moon is called Luna. It has a name. Yeah. Which I was like, I learned recently. I was like, how did I not know that? Just stuff like that. Like the space program has taught us so much about the world outside of the planet, but also has developed so many things to help benefit people on the planet too. And so when people make the argument of like, well, we've got so many problems on earth. Yes, we do. And with innovation and with technology and with science-driven missions and protocols, we can actually solve those missions in ways that we wouldn't think otherwise if we only focus on what's on the planet. Right. And I think there's an important takeaway from that, which which more or less, as you said, is that the the value of people who go to space because their motivation is to learn is going to inherently produce more for more people than those who go to space because they can. Right. Exactly. Another thing I'd like to throw in here too, just thinking about the, what it, what it takes to be an astronaut. And we sort of, again, have alluded to this, but just, just to add this to the take home points is this is a relatively traumatic experience, physically speaking, and as well as emotionally speaking, you are going through a, a situation where your life is you're in constant, constant threat. Now, fortunately, you're not necessarily in constant threat because there's an agent actively trying to kill you, but you're in constant threat because you're in an extremely dangerous situation. So there's at least some sense probably of control that is reassuring to some 
sense of like, if I do the right things, then I'll be okay. But that also is then it's stressful that that also means that your fate is in your own hands, that if you don't do the right things, then you very well might perish and bring several people along with you. So this is, there is a reason to try and find people who have some amount of resilience to this, which might honestly mean people who they maybe are okay with at least knowing how to tolerate these situations where they, it is a very, very emotionally draining and high risk. And that there's a lot of pressure to perform at a very, very, very high level for a long time without without relenting, really. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it is. It is. It takes a lot. Yeah. So what is the right stuff? It's not just a new kids on the block song. It is <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it is one of those things where uh, doing this episode has made me like has produced just like, this higher level of respect for astronauts. I already thought they were cool as hell. But yeah. like this was like one of those things where I'm like, it's just so much more. And I just really appreciate the work that they're doing this at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough, I think, to pursue something like this and know that there's just so many routes to failure along the way. Because another one is the fact that even just going through the training, going through the tests, that's a rigorous thing to put yourself through. Two um, years. And the number of people who make it is just a tiny fraction. So this whole thing is, I think, again, what you really got to look at is the, the, these people are pursuing something that is of value to them, which means that this is something that we do because our language gives us the capability to see and and think about things beyond what is immediately relevant in, in our the here and now, but think about you know things that are important in the future and whatnot. So, yeah, I think that's what I have to say on being an astronaut. I don't have anything else to say except for space is cool. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and, and a strong recommendation, a second recommendation is if you can go to the Kennedy Space Center and do a day there, please do it. It is worth it. It is so much fun and it is very, very interesting. I would definitely love to do that. I did not for the brief period of time that I lived in Florida. And I don't know if it's worth going back to do just that one thing, but maybe. We'll do Harry Potter too. We'll do okay. magic and science. Okay, great. Deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why we do what we do field trip. Yeah, that'd be a great episode. Shall we do some recommendations? Let's do it. Recommendations. All right, I'm going to recommend a movie. It's been out for a while, but I rewatched it recently and I just I just enjoy this movie so much and how it is made and and the acting and it is in in my mind just a, a very very well done movie. And that is The Bad Times at the El Royale. Uh this has got John Hamm, Jeff Bridges, Dakota Johnson, Cynthia Irvino, I think is how you say her last name. Irvio, maybe I'm forgetting that the, there might be a letter in there. I'm I'm forgetting. <laughs> oh, and Chris Hemsworth, of course, not, not not to be forgotten. So really awesome, wonderful cast. Uh really, really good. And uh, and I just think it's it's a super well done. Have you seen this movie? It's on my list and I own it. I have not seen it yet. Ooh. So it's a little bit longish, you know, it's over two hours, but it's a high recommend for me. I, I strongly suggest you. If you if you can take an evening and and that'll be the thing that you watch. I love the way it looked just from the trailers and the shots and stuff. So like it was one of those ones where like it just looks beautiful. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited to check it out. Cool. All right. My recommendation is an album by a band that has been a band at this point in time for over 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and I realized I've been listening to this band for 20 years, which made me feel very old when I realized that. <laughs> And this band is called Every Time I Die, and the album is called Radical. They just put out a new record too, not too long ago, and it is so good. Is it radical? It's radical. It's gnarly. It's tubular. It's all the things. 
outrageous it's outrageous so before the show started uh abraham and i were talking and i think you may you put it best like it's a return to form yeah this band started as not kind of like a a rock and roll kind of thing they were a metalcore band that were playing heavy aggressive music with well-written lyrics and over time they started kind of getting more mainstream and more rock and roll and all that and this is a return back to kind of that original vibe which is aggressive heavy well thought out, well written, and really interesting lyrics. And so I'm really excited to see this record uh, and and them to tour on it and all that. And the, the guest spots on it are really cool. They got the dude from Manchester Orchestra. They got Josh Scogan from 68. He used to be in Norma Jean. Mm-hmm. And there's some really cool stuff on this record. So it's definitely worth a listen if you like aggressive heavy music. Yeah, I, I second it. I've, I've so far been really enjoying this ever since you recommended it to me. Uh, so it's it's also sort of high up there and 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 yeah i think if you're yeah just as you said if you like that kind of music this is definitely a recommend to check out it's it's very fun for sure and the lyrics are so good just as you said so good keith buckley is an amazing lyricist and just an amazing writer so all right perfect uh do you anything else nope that's it all right if you're an astronaut planning to become one or would like to fill us in on something that we missed or maybe got wrong then please reach out and contact us we are at wwd wwd podcast on all the social media platforms you can also email us directly at info at www.com we look forward to hearing from all of you and you can tell us anything even if it's not about astronauts you can you can just say hi yeah we would be, we would love that we love hearing from people so i'd like to say thank you for the people who help really make this show happen that is amanda justin justine kim costia layla megan mike m mike t and shauna thank you so much thank you very much for listening thank you shane for recording with me today anytime thank you to the entire team justin amber Britt, selena kyle and alan for all the things that you do and helping this uh, podcast to be a thing And uh, I think that that is it. So this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.